In cultures that practiced slavery, there were obvious differences between the one who served and the master, between the son of a slave and the son of a slave owner. Although the servant may have possessed greater physical strength and innate intelligence than that of the owner's son, the servant was still regarded as an inferior person. The servant was under orders to obey, and the son was free to enjoy the provision of the father. In his argument for the superiority of Christ, the author of Hebrews pointed out that Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's household, as a testimony to what would be said in the future. But Christ was faithful as a son over his household, and we are that household if we hold on to the courage and the confidence of our hope. Hebrews 3, verses 5 through 6. A slave is never free to do anything voluntarily. Rather, he is always obligated to obey laws. Although regeneration changed the spiritual position of a slave, it did not eliminate his social status. He was still a slave. Many New Testament epistles provided valuable counsel for the converted servants and slave owners. Paul encouraged Philemon to receive the recently saved Onesimus no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother. Philemon verse 16. This cultural background of the first century provided an excellent analogy between the principles of spiritual sonship and those of spiritual bondage. Let us listen as Dr. Gonzalez begins his exposition of Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. If you have your Bibles with you, turn please to Galatians chapter 4. I'll remind you that in cultures which practiced slavery, there were obvious differences between a servant and a master, between a son of a slave and the son of a slave owner. Although the slave may have possessed greater physical strength and perhaps even have innate intelligence than the owner's son, the servant was still regarded as what? A servant. The servant was under orders to obey and the son was free to enjoy the provision of the father. So in his argument regarding the superiority of Christ, the author of Hebrews pointed out this from Hebrews chapter 3 verses 5 and 6. He says, Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's household as a testimony to what would be said in the future. But Christ was faithful as a son over his household. And we are that household if we hold on to the courage and the confidence of our hope. A slave was never free to do anything voluntarily. Rather, he was always obligated to obey the laws. Although regeneration changed the spiritual position of the slave, it did not eliminate that social status. He still remained a slave. He was still a slave in the sight of men. And you recall that in many of Paul's epistles, there is contained very valuable counsel for the converted servants and for uh, slave owners. Ephesians chapter 6 is an example, Colossians Chapter 3 is another, another example. You remember that Paul encouraged Philemon to receive the recently saved Onesimus. 
And I quote, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother. Philemon verse 16. So the cultural background of the first century thus provided a perfect analogy between the principles of spiritual sonship and spiritual bondage. And remember the theme of Galatians and what it is that Paul is dealing with in Galatians. The corruption of the gospel, the insertion again of the observance of law in order to be saved. So in the first seven verses, which we won't see during this first session, Paul deals with the whole doctrine of biblical sonship. In chapter 3, specifically verses 7 and 26, Paul taught us that a genuine believer is both a child of Abraham, chapter, uh, chapter, seven, uh, chapter 3, verse 7, and a son of God, chapter 3, verse 26. And these concepts, child and sonship, introduced in the earlier part of the epistle, will now be developed in greater detail in this particular chapter. So in the first three verses of this chapter, he deals with the preparation for sonship. And there are certain things he highlights about a, the difference between a child and a son and how that applies to the, to the whole argument that's going on between Paul and the Judaizers. There is a difference between a child and a son. And it takes much time for a totally dependent infant to develop into an independent son. The period of preparation is now used as an illustration of the person who has been under the law. So one of the first things that he points out, and if you look at chapter 4 and verse 1, the opening personal reference, now I say, serves to join the previous section with this topic, now I say. About what? About what he's been covering in the previous section. All believers, according to chapter 3, verse 29, are spiritual heirs, Paul teaches us. They inherit the promises of the Abrahamic covenant, including justification by faith. In natural life, the potential heir does not receive an inheritance until a rich relative dies or until he reaches the stipulated age. And he's going to contrast the difference between child and son uh, here in a moment. So, for example, when you think back to uh, the story of the prodigal son, you recall that the prodigal son enjoyed his inheritance even before his father died. Now, we know that, or at least we, we conclude that no rational father would probably give millions of dollars to an infant or to an uh, adolescent. Oftentimes, he puts his money that the child or the, or the, ch or the, the heir-to-be, he places that money in what we call today a trust fund. And the child cannot control that until he reaches the stipulated or the specific age of responsibility that has been determined by the father. In spiritual life, both the provision and the appropriation of an inheritance have been made possible through the death of Christ. The provision and the appropriation have been made possible 
through the death of Christ. The book of Hebrews states in chapter 9, verses 16 and 17, where a will exists, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will is valid only when people die, since it is never in force while the one who made it is living. So unlike natural life, a person is able to receive his inheritance at the very moment of spiritual birth. He enjoys the privileges of sonship immediately. And that's the difference we see with between the law and, and grace. There's that process of preparation. So first we find that in verse 1 that a child is like a slave. In this section, the reception of an inheritance is set for a prearranged time according to verse 2 where he says, until the time set by his father. Before the event occurs, the recipient is designated in three ways. First of all, he is the heir. Look at verse 1. It says, now I say that as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. So he is designated first and foremost as an heir. And the usage of the definite article, the heir, shows that he is the only child within the family. Second, he is spoken of as a child. And the word is usually used for an infant or a minor too young to speak. And third, he is said to be the owner of everything. So since he has the nature of his father within him, he possesses the birthright. He is the potential owner of the father's estate, although he must wait before he is able to exercise lordship in a practical way. This is under the law. The heir has two problems, though, in this passage. First of all, he can't receive his inheritance as long as the heir is a child. Verse 1. He's the owner of everything or the potential owner of everything, but he cannot receive the inheritance, uh, according to this verse, as long as the heir is a child. He must wait for the time when he is formally viewed as a mature or as a re responsible person. And the second problem is that in his childish condition, verse 1 or 2, he differs in no way from a slave. A servant has no inheritance, and neither does the childish heir, as long as he is a child. A servant is in a state of subservience and obedience, and so is the childish heir. The childish heir must obey both the regulations of the house and the directives of, in verse 2, the guardians and stewards. So what Paul is teaching us here is that while he is under legal age, the child, he cannot receive his inheritance. So Paul effectively uses this analogy to show that as long as a person puts himself under the obligation of the Mosaic law, again, this is what the Judaizers were insisting Gentiles do. And Paul is saying, listen, uh, you know, he uses this analogy to show that as long as a person puts himself under the obligation of the Mosaic law, he can never receive the spiritual inheritance, which is the main thrust of the Judaizers, and therefore they're discredited in their argument. Look at verse 2. So in addition to, to, to the fact that the child is a slave, verse 2 teaches us that a child is under supervision. In verse 2 he says, instead, 
he is under guardians and stewards until the time set by his father. So we learn here that the life of the heir is divided into two different periods of time. The years of supervision, when they're under guardians and stewards, and the era of sonship. The pivotal event which separates them is the time set by his father. And there's two observations made here concerning these early years. Notice, first of all, the identity of the supervisors. The child is under guardians and stewards. What's the difference between the two? Well, the, the guardian was a slave who protected the underage child, while the steward refers to the manager or the trustee of the estate or property. In this context, the heir is under the supervisors who have been directly appointed by his father. He had to obey them, the heir has to obey them, and the laws for the management of the household in the same way that the regular servants did. So the heir, the child, was like a slave, and he was under the supervision like the slave was. And notice the time of supervision was restricted until the time set by his father. Each family was, was uh, maybe different, thus the designated time varied. But according to, for example, Roman law, a tutor had charge of a child until the latter child became 14 years old, at, at which point a curator would take over who would guide the young man until he was 25. The time was set by his father, both in the oral instruction as well as in the written will. The time of legal sonship then was not affected by the premature death of the father. And the third thing that he points out in verse 3 is that the child is under bondage. Verse 3 says, In the same way, we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elemental forces of the world. Now notice the opening words, in the same way we, which point out a spiritual analogy to the cultural custom of the position of heirs under supervision. There's three facts stated about the bondage. First, the objects of bondage included Paul. He says, in the same way we, he includes himself. Before sonship, an heir was under the law of the stewards. What Paul is saying is that before justification, by faith, Paul and all Jewish believers were under the bondage of the Mosaic law. So again, keep in mind the context so far of, of the book of, of Galatians. The Judaizers are insisting that the law play a significant part in one becoming a child of Abraham and a son of God. And then notice the temporal clause when we were children in verse 3. It points to the time of bondage when Paul and the Jewish residents of Galatia were unconverted. Now from the advantage of spiritual hindsight, now Paul is a believer, as one who has been justified by faith, one who has come to become a son of God by faith alone, grace alone, in Christ alone. Now from the advantage of spiritual hindsight, Paul recognized that he could have never received the blessings of heirship while he was still in subjection to the righteousness of the law. In other words, what Paul is saying is that if I were to submit myself to what you are saying is required of me to become a son of God, I would never become one. The argument that I must in some sense observe the law or submit to circumcision or other regulations 
actually makes it impossible for me to become, spiritually speaking, a child of Abraham and a son of God. And third, the scope of bondage was under the elemental forces of the world, he says in verse 3. That verbal construction were in slavery shows a permanent spiritual condition. So what Paul is saying is that as long as you remain under the law, there is no chance that you will come out from under that slavery. You will always remain in bondage. And the preposition under continues the analogy. They remain under guardians and stewards, verse 2. They remain under the elemental forces of the world, verse 3. And under the law, verse 5, which we haven't seen yet. As long as you submit to what the Judaizers are insisting must be true, you will never come out from under these things. And as long as you're under these things, you're not a son of God. And you're not a child of Abraham, and thus become the recipient of the blessings, such as justification by faith, which were part of the covenant that God had made. And what are these elements? Well, they include the basic fundamental principles of legalistic Judaism. They are later called, in verse 9, the weak and bankrupt elemental forces. Elsewhere, Paul warned against the threat of being spoiled by, and I quote, elemental forces of the world, Colossians 2, verse 8. Through regeneration, and it's the only way we come out from under bondage and slavery. Through regeneration, a justified believer, now don't miss that, because one doesn't become justified unless one has first been regenerated. The only way to be justified is to be regenerated. And the only way to be regenerated is to come by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, which is the argument he's been making from the beginning. So through regeneration, a justified believer is actually dead according to Colossians chapter 2, verse 20, to what? The elemental forces of the world. So these elemental forces were the same regulations that the Judaizers were attempting to impose upon the Galatian converts. And remember, today we don't speak much about the law in terms, you know, in relationship to salvation or to the doctrine of salvation. So it may not be necessarily the law that which we are attempting to impose on somebody in order to be justified. But whatever it is, the impact is the same. Today we may have different requirements and they have nothing to do with the Mosaic law. There is no difference. If you add anything to the gospel, you have a problem because you no longer have the gospel being presented by which a person is saved. The philosophy of the world stresses the ability of man to do something to gain acceptance with God. Is that not true today? as it was in the days of Paul. I may have shared this before, but I'll share it again. I'll never forget an instance when I went to visit, or me and, and, and a few other individuals went to visit somebody who had visited a church that we were members of, and we had shared the gospel with that person as plainly as we could. And the response of the person is that they could not commit to that gospel because they could not believe that there were no further requirements on their life in order to be saved. And if you ask what are those requirements, they don't even know. They just think there ought to be something else. Where does that come from? If not from the very pit of hell. That's the same issue. The philosophy of the world stresses the ability of man to do something to gain the acceptance of God. For generations, unconverted people have emphasized 
whether the keeping of the Ten Commandments or, or the Sermon on the Mount or um, the Golden Rule as a means of obtaining personal salvation. What Paul is saying is that cannot be. And as long as you adopt that doctrine, you will forever remain under bondage as a slave who will never appropriate an inheritance that comes only by uh, grace alone, Christ alone. So the problem of Galatia centered around the Mosaic law as the means of justification before the true God. The problem in America is no different. It is still the same problem. But again, it may not be centered around the Mosaic law, but it is centered around the philosophy of man that insists there's got to be something more than just faith, grace, and Christ. And as long as that remains true in the mind of the hearer of the gospel, they will never become children of Abraham, sons or daughters of God.